This is the Journal of American History podcast for the late fall of 2019. My name is Benjamin Irvin, and I am the executive editor of the Journal of American History. On today's episode, we'll discuss a fascinating New Deal agency, the Farm Security Administration, and the labor programs by which it attempted to democratize Dust Bowl migrants, bracero workers, and Japanese-American internees in the early 1940s. Our guest today is Dr. Veronica Martinez-Matsuda, an assistant professor in the Department of Labor Relations, Law, and History at Cornell University School of Industrial and Labor Relations. Veronica, who holds a Ph.D. from the University of Texas at Austin, is the author of Migrant Citizenship, Race, Rights, and Reform in the U.S. Farm Labor Camp Program, forthcoming in the summer of 2020 from the University of Pennsylvania Press. Her research has won financial support from the Woodrow Wilson National Fellowship Foundation, the Ford Foundation, and the Smithsonian Institution, among other organizations. Her article, For Labor and Democracy, The Farm Security Administration's Competing Visions for Farm Worker Socioeconomic Reform and Civil Rights in the 1940s, appears in the September 2019 issue of the Journal of American History. Welcome, Veronica. Thank you so much for having me. Our guest host today, Dr. Maria Loza, is an assistant professor of food studies at New York University's Steinhardt School of Culture, Education, and Human Development. Maria, who completed her doctoral studies at Brown University, is the author of Defiant Braceros, How Migrant Workers Fought for Racial, Sexual, and Political Freedom. Published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2016, Maria's book won the Theodore Salutos Book Award from the Immigration and Ethnic History Society. Maria is now working on a history of food and race in the agricultural regions of the Western United States in the mid-20th century. She is also a distinguished lecturer with the Organization of American Historians. Thank you for joining us, Maria. Hi, I'm excited to be here. I'm really thrilled to have a chance to talk to Veronica. This is a conversation about 19 years in the making. For listeners who don't know either one of us, we actually first met in August 2001 uh, as graduate students at UT. And I remember I remember then you had just begun your research on farm workers in Texas. And I just remember vividly bumping into you on the quad and just, you know, hearing a little bit about this early work. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came across this story? Yes. I can't believe it's been that long. Oh, my goodness. Sometimes I, I think, I mean, I'm showing the signs of it for sure. I've got my gray hairs. But I think back on it and it seems like yesterday. But I do very much remember meeting you. And I'm so grateful that you agreed to do this interview because I don't know that in, you know, despite our, our good friendship, I don't know that we've ever sat down and talked about our work despite all the intersections in our work. So thank you for this. I also wanted to, to clarify something. I used to remember talking to you like you were a homegirl, even though you grew up in Chicago. I grew up in L.A., but your family's from Durango. Is that right? Yes. Okay. My so mother. we are. We're, we're paisanas of sorts. Okay. Mm-hmm. See? So we go way back, more, more, more ways than you can uh, imagine. So let's see. Well, okay. Going back to your question, I should really focus here. That's right. I was already in early 2000 thinking about farm workers, and I think there's really two ways to, to answer this in terms of how I arrived at this story. So the more direct answer is that I was working with Emilio Zamora as my dissertation advisor by that time, my PhD advisor, and he knew I was interested in farm workers. I'd written some seminar papers on that topic. And he had recently, sometime in the mid-1990s, served on a committee for the Texas Historical Commission, which administers the National Register of Historic Places and Sites in Texas. And he had served on a committee to determine if a former labor camp for farm workers located in La Mesa, Texas, merited landmark status. And he'd never heard of the camp, so he was able to sort of really figure out, you know, what was this about? How was it connected to a larger labor camp system? And it turned out to be one of these communities that I now study. And it did eventually get landmark status. And part of the reasons it was sort of determined to have historical integrity was both because of its significance in terms of the New Deal as an example of New Deal policy, but also because of its ethnic and social history, what it meant to that local community. So he was the one who encouraged me to look into the topic, and I took a trip out there to La Mesa, Texas, brought our friend Virginia Raymond, (laughs) and we went out there. I had never seen a bale of cotton before. I got to see, which most people sort of assume since I study farm workers, that that's part of my personal history, but I had not (laughs) been familiar with uh, what a field of cotton would look like, which, which they grow there. It was really kind of a dramatic experience for me because in part, the, well, I mean, that was sort of what this committee was uh, tasked to do to sort of 
see you know, to what extent the spatial arrangement, the built environment of this camp still had the historical integrity of its original construction, and it did. And that was really impressive to me. There was something there of a clue, if you will, that this was an important national story, the way that the, that community was arranged. So that was the more direct way I arrived at the project. I sort of started there and kept peeling away, you know, as they say. But I also want to speak to something perhaps more broadly, more indirect, that I think is something that connects me to many other scholars, including you, I think. I don't know, you'll tell me otherwise. But that is at the heart of my work. I've always been interested in the way that immigrants navigate national belonging in the United States. And that stems from my own personal experience as the daughter of immigrants who arrived undocumented to the United States in the mid-1970s. So, you know, I I witnessed growing up, I'm the the youngest in my family, and there's five girls, and uh, I witnessed coming of age, how they navigated that, how they navigated civic membership, how they claimed political identities despite their legal status, how they navigated sort of racialized experiences at work for my father, who was mostly illiterate, having had a third grade education. So I think fundamentally, I've always been interested in those questions of citizenship and identity and was drawn to farm workers in particular because of the way that they experienced that, I think, in a more heightened way, given their exclusions from labor protections, from you know, social welfare benefits and so forth, which I know you're, you're well familiar with as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's I think the more personal side. Definitely. I think that that's part of the reason why we've rarely had conversations about our work, because we've had personal conversations about our families, so, yeah. about migration, about belonging. And in some ways, you know, it is that, you know, the personal has really informed the academic work, but we rarely get a chance to talk about our academic work. You know, it's really interesting, Vero, that you mentioned that you visited a camp before you actually started working on this subject. You know, I've gotten a chance to visit Rio Vista, and I think that there's something really visceral about walking around these grounds where farm workers, braceros, you know, basically inhabited these spaces and shaped these spaces. And for me, one of the most interesting parts is that right now there's such a move to preserve these sites and to preserve that history and to talk about it. In your case, your sites, the camps, are really shaped by the Farm Security Administration. Can you tell me a little bit about how you think they shape the space? Yeah, I think, you know, that's not something I write a lot about in this article. It will be a focus of my forthcoming book, which I hope we get the chance to talk about, because the built environment in these camps, uh, that was another area, really, of the work that I didn't expect to do. So when Emilio had recommended this topic, we were thinking of it more in terms of studying farm workers' communities, because little, at least in the early 2000s, had been written about Texas in the same way as, say, California, in terms of how were these communities formed and how did farm workers as migrants especially kind of maintain a sense of community identity and in and that way sort of pressure for civil rights or labor rights. And so I was just thinking I'm going to look for a way to study that in the context of Texas since it was such an important wave of migration, of course, central to, to national agricultural production. Then when I went to La Mesa and discovered the actual arrangement of these camps, I saw that they were actually constructed, literally, right? The architecture of the buildings, the arrangement of the different housing structures, community center, and so forth, in a way that seemed very intentful. And I don't know how to describe this for listeners, but they were built in a way that most often were circular, or in fact, in their very first developments in California, they were actually very specifically hexagonal. I mean, they were really, if you see them, it's quite striking, the blueprint. And there was a lot of thought behind how this arrangement would create the kind of social relations that these federal officials envisioned. So I really have, and this kind of links back to our connected histories too, because I really have a scholar named Rachel Leibowitz to thank. She's an architectural scholar who was at the National Museum of American History when I was there in 2005 as a Smithsonian Fellow. And you were the one who prompted me to apply for that Smithsonian Fellowship. So this goes back to you. (laughs) You might not even remember that. But I met her there and she was studying Navajo reservations and in particular, the work of the Office of Indian Affairs. And she immediately saw these blueprints, this information, and really pointed me in the right direction to studying the architectural work behind these camps. That's not something I talk about in this article. This article, I guess, focuses more, or maybe not as much as it could have, but more on how the migrants themselves forged a sense of communal space within these camps, or, you know, how their interactions produced a sense of shared identity. And 
I think the most important uh, lesson for me in sort of thinking about how they did that came from my research in South Texas, so not so much La Mesa's closer, it's not in the Texas Panhandle, but closer to that region. So moving further south near the border, the Farm Security Administration established a whole sort of cluster of camps there, seven in particular. And it's there where I felt that migrants really, for me, spoke to the meaning of the space. So in the oral histories I conducted with people in that region, they remember it like it was yesterday. Maybe you come across this in your own work. They not only remember it, but they drew what I call mental maps. So they drew maps of the space very specifically to talk about how things were arranged, who lived where, what kind of activities went on in each building. And I thought this was really central to how I would tell this story so that it wasn't just a narrative about how the Farm Security Administration created communities, which I think is more how it comes across in this article, but how farm workers themselves, based on their own, of course, regional identities and communities and you know, decades, at least for Mexicanos, of being in work crews together, how they had created that themselves, even within the space that was so intentionally constructed, right? So, yeah. You know, I think it's interesting that you went there before you started this research. I actually got a chance to visit Rio Vista when my book was completed, and I think that would have completely shaped my sort of lens differently in that I'd heard so many stories, and you're right, people remember these spaces, and they basically narrate maps of space. They narrate maps of, you know, Rio Vista constantly, and so walking on those grounds, it felt ghostly because I had heard so much about this space. You know, it really felt like a hallow ground in some way because I'd heard, I thought, and walking there was just so different. You know, in, in your research, one of the things that I'm really sort of fascinated with, getting back to, you know, the kind of heart of a lot of your work, I'm really, you know, interested in how you basically tell us this completely different story of the Farm Security Administration. You basically tell us about this really interesting moment in which they're imagining democracy, in which they're imagining like a different configuration of social relationships. Can you tell me a little bit about how they were able to imagine such an audacious goal? And, you know, for readers that don't know so much about the Farm Security Administration, I think we need to talk about why this is so such a distinct goal from basically different stories of the Farm Security Administration. Yeah, so I guess to say something briefly about this agency, the, the sort of technical side of it, if you will, which might explain this misunderstanding that I suggest has occurred in the in the history and historiography, is that this was a New Deal agency that was created more specifically in 1937 under the Department of Agriculture, the USDA. But it emerged and it was very grounded ideologically in its predecessor agency, the Resettlement Administration, which emerged in 1935. So that was the very specific specific sort of New Deal construction of a farm agency. And the leader of that agency, the, the chief operator of the Resettlement Administration, was someone named Rexford Tugwell, who was known to be quite a sort of liberal New Dealer who had you know, big ideas and really wanted to see as uh, the sort of agrarian scholars have laid out, there's been a lot of work on on some of these intellectuals. And, you know, they really lay out how some of these individuals wanted to reconstruct the rural community to reimagine rural communities through, you know, sort of democracy building and saw that attention as really significant. So particularly coming out of the depression, how can we sort of plan for community development in a way that democratizes these rural landscapes that for the most part were already being very much sort of ignored right, in the national mindset especially during the Depression. So it has its origins there. But by the time the FSA is built, Rexford Tugwell is out. There's new administrators. I can sort of talk about them if that's interesting. But it becomes a very different agency because the Resettlement Administration is built out of what's happening in the U.S. South, which I don't talk about specifically in this article, but central to the story. So it's about the displacement and dislocation of sharecroppers and tenants and the kind of national emergency that that's creating. But it's rooted in this like agricultural history that's very different than, say, what exists in the West, which is where I concentrate this study. And that, of course, in the West, you've had migrant farm workers for decades prior to the Depression. Right? That had been the system that was well in place by then. So when the FSA starts 
to when it forms in 37 and when it starts to really pay attention to migrant farm workers, it's doing so in this more intentful way about how it considers farm workers within this larger kind of democracy building, if you will, framework in, in rural communities. So you're absolutely right that they're audacious. I think they are very much <laughs> the exception, certainly to most ways that the USDA was operating at the time and still. <laughs> And one of the most important reasons why they were so audacious was because they defied the very thing you, you, know, you talked about, which was the right of farmers to exploit their workers. In other words, the CAMP program in its early years especially was essential in disrupting that kind of farm labor control system, which existed in places like the West for so long, which was not just about a labor control system, but of course, socioeconomic and political hierarchies in these regions. And that I mean, agriculture was key to everything, the way everything ran in these communities. So they were audacious in that they were providing migrant families greater economic security, housing, medical care, education, all things that affirmed that farm workers were entitled to the same rights, right? same privileges, things that they had just been within the New Deal denied in legislative terms. So I think that was one of the ways, right, that they from the beginning almost, are kind of seen as outsiders, as outcasts to the way New Deal planning is going in rural communities and in farming more generally. And they also just go into these communities and they really set this very different tone that we see through your work. You know, one of the things that I was struck by is they basically create multiracial communities with just migrants interacting with, you know, Mexicans and Mexican-Americans in ways that, you know, I wouldn't have imagined as so such a just fruitful site. You really kind of uncover this world in which they're, you know, helping facilitate these interracial interactions. Can you tell me a little bit about how they did this and, you know, what what really were they trying to address? Yeah. So I think maybe to backtrack, I should say a little bit more about why the FSA was interested in getting involved, because I think that would then get at how they sort of saw this as a vision that should impact all farm workers, which were, of course, very diverse in this moment. So despite what people think, I think there's a lot of misconception, especially when we're looking at the West, that this sort of white dust bowl migration comes in and pushes everybody out. And, you know, that there's this sort of like somehow monoracial or monoethnic world <laughs> operating, which is not what's happening on the ground. But just to backtrack a little bit about why they got involved, right? Why the attention to, to farm workers in this way? There were the very practical reasons, which I think is sometimes sort of how we come at this history. So it's the Great Depression, there's farm workers or migrants living in ditch banks, you know, and it's like the kind of specific need to house them with little resources during the Depression to do so from at least the community level. And so intervening in that way, it's these sort of big government coming in, let's make sure that people have safe and sanitary housing, that babies aren't dying of malnutrition, you know, that all of the sort of access, immediate care, if you will, that's kind of typically associated with the New Deal in terms of relief. But there were really important ideological reasons, some of which I've already hinted at in, in telling you kind of the origins of this organization. And those are the ones that I think people don't know enough about. We don't really think about how these agents were operating and kind of these bigger, broader goals. And so one of the things that I write a lot about, and it's in this article, I talk about it in terms of the democratic script or the democratic intentions. And that is that many of the FSA's early administrators, people like Will Alexander, these names might be familiar to some historians, or Calvin Beanie Baldwin, C.B. Baldwin, they really believed that it was the FSA's responsibility to improve farm workers' structural inequality. They argued that farm, if farm workers continue to be disenfranchised, if they continue to be sort of exploited and excluded from you know, these kind of provisions that were emerging during the New Deal, new protections, that this, as Alexander put it, this made a mockery of U.S. democracy because it showed that we had this permanent class of citizens, and they didn't mean it in the very sort of juridical sense. They really meant it as people contributing right, to the U.S. and to our well-being and benefit, that if we had this permanent class of people that were regularly denied their civil rights, then we couldn't call ourselves a democracy. So quite astonishingly, they said, this is actually the real problem, the real migrant problem of this period, not all the dislocation in the movement. I mean, that was certainly a structural material problem that had to be dealt with. But the real problem lied in the fact that if we continue to have right, these group of people who 
couldn't go to school, couldn't go to church, couldn't vote, you know, were denied public aid because they weren't so-called residents of where they were, then that wasn't right. Fundamentally, that wasn't part of our nation's democratic ideals. This didn't represent what we said we stood for. So I think that was really kind of uh, remarkable, not kind of, it was a very remarkable ideological commitment to farm workers, if you will. So then in the article, I talk quite specifically about what this would mean in the, as you called it, you know, real multiracial world of agriculture during the 1930s and 40s. So I talk about, again, the kind of ideological connections in terms of the FSA's democratic script. So the kind of language and the actions that these officials advanced in their effort to democratize or to re-enfranchise, if you will, farm workers, regardless of their background. And I should probably say that in talking about a democratic script, I'm talking about it sort of building off uh, Natalia Molina's racial scripts theory. This is something people are familiar with, but she very astutely talks about the importance for historians to think about racialized groups as linked, you know, across time, across space, and operating with relational experiences, even when they don't really interact or intersect in that kind of immediate way. So I talk about the FSA's democratic script, that all farm workers were entitled to equal protection under the law, you know, that all of them should have equal access to political power and representation, regardless of their origins. And I talk about this as their way of, you know, envisioning building democracy in more substantive and participatory terms than merely formal or representative, as is often sort of thought of, right, sort of kind of more classic sense of liberal democracy. I think that the really interesting thing, too, is that you actually show us how they battle in certain arenas and how they go to bat for farm workers. So one specific example I was really interested in is how they actually went to bat for farm workers' children, like these kids of farm workers in these really heated areas like education, you know, in this very early period where I just thought, wow, they're doing something incredible here. And again, we'll go back to, you know, audacious. Can you tell me a little bit more? Like, why, why are they taking up, you know, really becoming these vocal defenders of equality for the children of farm workers? Yeah, I, I think you're right. I agree. This is one of the most progressive things they did, I'd argue, this and probably also the, the medical program for agricultural workers. I've, I've been trying to talk more about that aspect, although it's not in this article because it's not well known, but the Farm Security Administration helped establish in around 1938 an Agricultural Workers Health Association, which was basically like a nationalized health insurance plan for migrant agricultural workers, if you can imagine that, that they could take, you know, anywhere they traveled and their care would be subsidized by the federal government, whatever they couldn't cover. Totally outside of what you'd imagine a typical farm agency, right, to do. So certainly the educational component, I think it demonstrates like how far this agency really considered migrants' poverty to be something rooted beyond just their workplace experience, right, that it was tied to you know, you sort of refer to as kind of structural experiences and dislocations. And I think that was another part of their audacity that how remarkably they considered, again, under, you know, the Department of Agriculture, that if they were to intervene, if they were really to service, to offer relief to farm workers, they needed to tend to these broader concerns. So I think that's one of the simplest reasons why they get involved in the schooling battles. It's out of the kind of need, immediate need to intervene. And part of that story is just simply the fact that in almost every single community, unfortunately, where they built these camps, the local residents refused to educate the camp's kids. You know, they argued things that we might be familiar with, that they didn't have the resources to, you know, service these kids, that actually they didn't have to because the children weren't residents of their community. So they couldn't afford to, they, you know, shouldn't have to, they didn't have the space, their schools were already overcrowded. And then, of course, the more sort of racialized discourses about these children being ignorant, dirty, unruly, things that, you know, have historically been said about immigrant or non-white migrant workers. So part of their intervention, and the case I talk about in the article is in Robstown, Texas, one of these South Texas camps. And in that case, that's you know exactly how they get involved. They have to intervene. They have to sort of fight the local school superintendent to see, you know, it's your responsibility. You must educate these children. You're bringing in workers to service, you know, your growers. This is the other side of that. 
So they intervene. And the cases in which it didn't work, which several existed, they even constructed their own private schools inside the camps, which I found to be very remarkable, especially in places like Texas, where in the 1930s and 40s, the typical experience, say, for a Mexican migrant family would have been to have really separate schooling. So in places like South Texas, where segregation and schooling wasn't formally regulated, sort of in legal practice, it was what existed in social customs. So for the FSA to come in and construct schools where children that were Mexican and Anglo, as was the term prevalent in the region, sat side by side, that was an important way in which they contest what's happening in public schooling for farm workers at the time. So I think it is quite remarkable that they intervened. And they're doing so, this is the other part of that in terms of farm workers' public education. They're doing this at a time in which the rights of migrants to sort of work in the field as children is being contested. That's still being regulated, although some of the deal legislation, you know, sort of has policies around labor conditions for children in industry. So I'm talking about the U.S. Fair Labor Standards Act of Mm -hmm. 1938. They don't, of course, some of these (laughs) regulations don't apply to agriculture. So in many ways, education allowed the FSA to really come in, right, to, for it to be sort of a core site in which they're protecting migrant children's rights. Well, definitely. I mean, either these children can go out as workers or they can become students. And I think it's fantastic that you actually unearthed these really beautiful photos of these spaces in which they were given an opportunity to become students. I don't think people think of that as a right, right? Like the, kid, the opportunity of a child to be a student, but that was so key for farm work. You know, because, of course, the community wanted them in the field. <laughs> they wouldn't say so, but that was bottom line. Well, I mean, it's it's still an issue we struggle with as a nation in that <laughs> it is the only industry that continues to allow very young, young people to work. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we still live with those legacies. You know, I wouldn't be me if I wouldn't actually ask a question, ask you a question. Guest workers, you know me, and I love to talk about braceros. Yeah. Drum roll, please. I mean, I think that this is what, what I really liked also about your work, that you basically provide this, like, gigantic stage in which I see these actors, you know, these really dynamic actors. I see Mexican and Mexican-American farm workers, Japanese and Japanese-Americans working as farm laborers and basically despot migrants. But then when you move into the 1940s, I see one of my, you know, favorite characters, the Bracero. And I think it's really interesting to me in part because the FSA is really, what you're sort of unveiling is this real commitment to American democracy. And the figure of the Bracero always, to me, stands in the face of American democracy because they are the, yeah, they are the people by design who are exploitable, (laughs) deportable, disposable. And they kind of like constantly fly in the face of our myths of who we are as Americans, right? So we have myths about we are a nation that is, you know, partly composed of immigrants who come in and work really hard. And it's through their hard work that they get belonging, that we get entry. But braceros constantly undo that myth because our hardest workers by design will never have belonging. And by design, they will never have children like you and I. That's that's mm-hmm. the point, right? That they can come in, yeah. but they got to go home. You know, for me, this architecture is really rooted in xenophobic ideas and really xenophobic ideas that cut to this like rootedness of potential Latino communities, right? How do like the farm workers, how do they react to the farm workers one or the guest workers, the FSA? You know, how did they like lose this opportunity to think of them as potential entry points to American democracy? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, you're making me sort of get at the tragic conclusion. Everybody's like, your story's so tragic. When I'm really, uh, you wouldn't believe it, but I'm trying, I'm trying to be hopeful. <laughs> I'm actually saying there's something here we can recover or we can learn from. I'm sure we can talk about that. But it's true. It's absolutely true. I have to be honest that, you know, how this final story and what happens here is quite tragic and that the FSA indeed is the specific agency that plays a role in bringing guest workers, in particular Mexican braceros, and then one year later in 43, Caribbean workers to these very camps, right? So they are the ones that are undermining this project in the end and is, of course, quite tragic in terms of the story of building democracy and farm workers' rights. I think that actually what I would say, and it's part of the historiographical intervention, I hope my work made, and it's not to critique the farm labor scholars because they're who trained me. <laughs> so all of us, you know, who've, who've sort of come from a really rich and important tradition writing about guest workers and farm worker communities, 
that narrative holds true. But what I'm arguing, I guess, is that we need to slow down a bit. We really need to examine how this unfolded, how this new system solidified, you know, that you're talking about, because it didn't happen quite the way it's been narrated. So that there's this important, even if it's just a few years there, moment in which the Farm Security Administration is fighting. It's fighting for keeping this more what I call reproductive labor system in terms of its commitment to farm workers more generally, right, to their security, to their stability, to their health, to their education. There's this moment in which they're fighting to retain that, even as they're becoming this kind of labor supplier, if you will, and forced into, they are generally forced into recruiting guest workers for these growers. So I argue that it doesn't happen as immediately as we think it did, and that, in fact, that battle says a lot about their intentions, about their sort of more reformist or liberal intentions. So even in the early 1940s, and even as they are tasked with this, you know, sort of specific duty to go out and recruit foreign workers. So one of the ways I saw this unfold was one of the FSA's officials, Lawrence Hughes, who was in charge of the FSA's Region 9 which covered California, Arizona, Utah, Nevada. He is the one who selected to go negotiate terms of the Bracero program in Mexico. So Hughes writes about this in his memoir called Boxcar in the Sand. And he says how resistant he was to fulfilling this role, in part because he had been so vocal against growers' wishes about how they didn't need guest workers. They didn't need Mexican braceros because there were enough domestic workers to fill their needs. But it was actually Mexican government officials who insist that it be the FSA who helped negotiate this contract. And it's very much because they knew of these intentions that they had had in securing workers' rights, in securing workers' stability, and in promising, you know, sort of less exploitive, if you will, conditions. So it's the very thing that makes them the agency, at least for Mexican officials, that should play this role in bringing in guest workers. So when they enter that, they actually do so very reluctantly. They don't want to be the agency that's going to bring in guest workers. And as a result, they really continue through the early 40s to talk about the importance, not just for domestic workers, but of foreign workers to keep their rights respected, to you know really kind of highlight the way, especially during World War II, that, you know, the United States needs to uphold their democratic values. <laughs> we can't continue to exploit or isolate low-income people from full citizenship because this was against right, our patriotic duty, if you will, in, in this great war for democracy. And they're trying, they're making speeches, you know, as far as they can to do so. But it's really the turning point is in 1943. It's in 1943 as they've undergone all kinds of congressional pressure that this begins to shift. And that's the very moment that the Bracero program is taken away from the Farm Security Administration and given over along with other sort of programs to, to regulate migrant labor conditions, including housing and wages and so forth, to the more pro-grower War Food Administration. So in some ways, they're fighting all along. They end up losing this fight. And it's rooted in this kind of, again, ideological commitment, because all along, the FSA's critics are saying they're the wrong agency to regulate farm labor conditions. Some of what they're providing in terms of sort of specific provisions, and in particular, they talk about like the tenant purchase program as maybe worthy. Some of those things were okay, but these bigger things, right, the more socialized experiments that they were carrying out, were inappropriate, especially in this time of war, as we enter into World War II. Congress, and in particular, through the American Farm Bureau and the Associated Farmers, which are well organized by this time, they pressured to oust the FSA from the Bracero program and from a lot of the sort of activity that they were carrying out and demand, right, more laborist <laughs> approaches that had less to do with what I call these sort of reproductive means, right, more about just straight up labor. And it's in 1943 that these communities literally in their name become labor supply centers instead of farm workers communities. It's about that extractive right, nature of the, the guest worker programs. It's about what you were referring to in terms of disposability, you know, where we don't have to provide these provisions, right? They don't deserve in these kind of racialized arrangements any of these guarantees. Definitely. Yeah. I think I think that the strength of of looking at this period as well is, you know, it's hard to explain to people often that the Bracero program isn't although, you know, it, it has it looks very continuous, it looks like it's one thing. The really odd thing is it's like an octopus with plenty of tentacles oh, where, you know, different in different periods it functions differently. 
but mm-hmm. also it functions differently based on region as well. That mm-hmm. farmers have so much say and these, you know, farmer associations and grower associations have so much power to really yield this uneven kind of geography of the Bracero program. I think, you know, you do this really important kind of work to show us this moment of possibility with government officials that are really trying to push back. They're trying to push back as best they can, you know, and I see that in different places. I also see, again, you know, this populating this farm worker, these farm worker sites with so many different subjects. And, you know, one of the things that I was struck with is that you actually start thinking about this really important historical period and having Japanese American agricultural workers also come to the fore in this story. Can you talk a little bit about how they come to the fore and like why it's so important to start putting these things in conversation or these not just topics, regions, but like subjects in conversation with each other? Yeah, and I think this goes back to some of that kind of relational work that I referenced when I was talking about the democratic script or even Natalia Molina's racial script, that it's in part the kind of practical attention to what's happening as these peoples are intersecting, right? They literally are on the same camp. There's a really wonderful story that I talk about more in the book, not in this article, where one of the camp managers working for the FSA in 1943, he's in Woodville, California, and he's talking about the real headache, as he described it, of managing the Dust Bowl population that's still in this camp, you know, the former Dust Bowlers, if you will, because it's 43, and then the arrival of the so-called Mexican nationals, right? And so like, oh my gosh, like here it is coming to head. You know, like what we say we stand for, all of these sorts of expanded rights versus what we're doing to bring in labor competition. How, you know, the the dust bowlers that are there, the so-called real Americans are saying, what are you doing to us, right? You say you represent our interests, but here you are. So there's these moments of confrontation that I think are really dramatic and very exemplary of what, you know, the kind of things I'm trying to write about. But I think there's also really important ways that I bring these populations together to test out to what extent, as promising as the FSA's commitment was to farm workers, to what extent was it also rooted in limitations and, you know, reinforce some of the biases that in fact had originally disenfranchised these workers to begin with. And for me, it was discovering the Japanese American experience within this camp program. I didn't realize I had somewhat traced through the kind of architectural history that I was doing that some of these architects for the FSA would go on and build internment camps during World War II. So talk about that contradiction, right, from spaces of democracy to sites of containment. I mean, that was, for me, a very literal representation of these tensions that they're managing. But there were also, as I talk about in the article, Japanese Americans who participate in something called the seasonal leave program. So after they've been relocated After World War II, some of them are then allowed to volunteer to do farm labor and therefore placed in in the Farm Security Administration's care under some of these these labor programs. And one of the things also I should probably state for our listeners, there's this new really wonderful exhibit and collection of oral histories. I know you've written a little bit on the Japanese Taceros Mireya, so Mm -hmm. I don't know that they, they cover this as well, that you're stuff could really strengthen this. But there's a great collection that wasn't available until the very end of the work I did, but it's called Uprooted Japanese American Farm Labor Camps During World War II. And you can access that at uprootedexhibit.com. And then at least had some kind of personal testimony to what it was like for these workers, because I knew that structurally they represented a contradiction to how this organization starts, how this camp program begins, but I couldn't really talk about how life for them was different in these camps. So some of that oral history material was really useful for that, but I talked about it, of course, in the broader sense in terms of, again, the limitations to the FSA's democratic script, that this very reality of hosting Japanese Americans who were quote-unquote enemy aliens in the moment just disrupted the notion that anyone, right, practicing good citizenship, ideal citizenship, could enact these potentials. I mean, here were these groups whose civil liberties had, in fact, been nullified, right? They're living as prisoners in the moment under the state. So their participation was very important. But I'm careful at the same time in not over, like, over-arguing the point to say that in some ways, 
it's true that their experience in the camp program well, was exceptional. It did allow them, you know, some of them talked about to get outside of the internment structure. One worker that I recall, his interview was talking about how this was a chance to get a breath of fresh air, to be on the other side of the fence, right, to earn wages. All of those things are really important. And the FSA was really intentful in creating these programs as part of their kind of democratizing assimilationist narrative, that even in the context of Japanese internment, that the farm labor camps could operate to sort of argue against all the prejudiced attitudes that existed for these racialized enemies to say, no, they are good citizens, they are loyal citizens, they're deserving of rights. But I know, right, that despite saying all that, despite maybe practicing these opportunities in the camps, it didn't erase the fact that they were, in fact, interned and that they were enemy aliens. And there were many ways in which even in these farm labor sites, they were still restricted. They couldn't go out unsupervised or they couldn't leave their jobs, which is the fundamental <laughs> right of labor right, to, to recruit or to perform other work. So it was quite, you know, sort of a difficult thing to manage even for them. Yeah, but you do a fantastic job of like rendering these contradictions in a way that shows that this was so complicated for people. You know, this is not simply a, I love to just work outside. This is because in the face of detainment, this is the one choice that maybe helps me recuperate a sense of myself or yeah. a sense of community, a sense of family. And I think you really do this fantastic job constantly of reminding us this is, these are limited choices. You know, people are making these choices within this limit that is, you know, really difficult pill to swallow. It's very heart-wrenching in many ways. In that case, it was one of the moments where you kind of start going into how complicated this FSA vision of democracy is, because it's not even for all subjects all the time. And you show this kind of power of the FSA. In some ways, what I was fascinated with is, you know, the limits that you show. In other ways, do you feel that these kind of contradictions and these limits help these individuals? Do you have other examples of that? Yeah, I mean, I think that in some ways it was the most difficult thing I grappled with in this essay and in this research more generally. Like, I remember very early on in doing this work, struggling with, is this a good agency or the bad agency? <laughs> are, these, mm -hmm. are these good guys or bad guys? And even, I think for those of us that study farm workers, maybe you experience this in your own work, where it's rare that we see the state as allies. <laughs> yeah. It's rare that the state intervenes to improve, at least in this kind of, again, federal level, right? There, there might be sort of operating factors in local communities around the ground. So I went into this project really assuming, and that's really where some of the historiography was, that this was an agency that was sort of controlling these workers and therefore whatever they were saying was not their sort of real commitment or intent. It was about supplying workers for growers and it's about the efficiency of the system. So I really struggled when I would find then evidence of state officials of their really deep, and you could sense it, especially in their memoirs, the real deep, almost ethical kind of concern, right, that they were grappling with and really having these visions of a real social democracy in the United States versus to what extent they in fact do facilitate, as we talked about, a labor system, an exploitive labor system in, in the guest worker programs by the mid-1940s. So, you know, could they be both good and bad? <laughs> and I resisted that because I think that, you know, there's a deeper history here. It's more complicated than that, as, as we were talking about, because as much as the FSA sought to empower migrants, and there's certainly enough evidence to show that they genuinely did, especially in the face of extreme political opposition, I think that's remarkable. It's true that they expected farm workers to subject themselves to the program's conceptions about appropriate domestic or economic, cultural, political behavior. They had an idea, in other words, of what they were intending to mold and in some ways could be very restrictive about that. So despite the fact that most camp managers, I feel, really genuinely were trying to work with migrant families to determine their needs, there's also evidence of the staff acting like experts who knew what was better you know, or best for these sometimes what they really refer to quite directly as ignorant people, right? They didn't know their rights. We have to teach them their rights. So they said things like they assumed that migrants lacked any sense of community building strategies. They didn't know how to come together or work collectively, which of course is absurd. <laughs> if we think about the rich farm worker organizing history prior to this moment, they often reinforce the kind of racial and cultural pathologies explaining farm workers' 
either poor health or, again, lack of education. And they did all of these things despite, again, their real true right commitment or intent to expand their rights. So I think it's important to acknowledge that kind of contradiction. But it's really the farm workers who test the FSA's democratic script or their sort of vision who kind of call them out, if you will, because in having to manage, right, farm workers' varied experiences, very important specific positionalities in terms of their legal status or racial identity in various regions, then FSA officials had to consider how not all citizens were equal, you know, that real sort of prolonged access to democratic rights was conditional. It could be taken away in a moment of war, as we saw with the Japanese-American experience. So all of this was, of course, key right, to testing the FSA, to really making them act out what these ideological commitments were in a way that had practical value for these communities. Meanwhile, with migrants all along, of course, articulating their own kind of political visions, not just waiting on the FSA to democratize them, but yeah. they themselves, right, speaking of themselves as political figures, as people who understood how and why they'd been disenfranchised. You know, they weren't ignorant, as was a very kind of typical application to, to their identity, you know, why they were in the condition they were. They just didn't know. It's like, obviously, <laughs> that's not, we have enough historical evidence to know that that's not true. Definitely. I mean, as I was reading your piece, I kept thinking about how, you know, the FSA was so complicated and you show all these different sides of the FSA and how as government agency, you're right. We don't expect them to be the, that vocal and sort of wanting to intercede on behalf of farm workers. You really do a you know, fantastic job of showing us things are always more complicated. You know, right now, we're all sort of grappling with a really complicated food system that has its roots in this period, right? I mean, it goes much deeper, but this period is really fundamental in shaping what our food system becomes, what agriculture system becomes. So... We begin to rely in this period on much more bracero labor, deportable, vulnerable. And even though the bracero program ends, we know for a fact that H-2A workers don't stop coming. H-2A workers effectively replace the bracero program and undocumented workers, which are also highly deportable. In a lot of ways, I kept thinking about, you know, the lessons of this piece, the lessons of this piece for the contemporary period. And what kind of things do you think we can learn from this piece that really will help shape our present and really shape our critiques around the food system? Yeah, I think you're right. You know, we were talking about kind of the tragic outcomes of this moment of the 1940s, early 1940s. And one of the things that when I teach labor history here at the ILR school and talking about the kind of shift for industrial workers in terms of their rights versus farm workers, you know, students highlight the way in our current moment, so much of industrial workers or public employees' rights are being rolled back. And I say, you know, quite provocatively, well, farm workers have never quite had them. So <laughs> mm -hmm. we continue to organize, you know, this is what we were saying about the intervention historically anyway. Uh, farm workers in many ways continue to organize as they've always had because of necessity, right? Because they've re remained excluded from some of these protections historically. But I'd say, despite the challenge to remaining optimistic, I hope I can provide a more positive potential in telling the story and thinking through ways that we can you know, draw attention to some of these issues. Because in this moment that I'm talking about, you know, against seemingly insurmountable odds, you know, and just to clarify, this is, the New Deal was a sort of liberal reaction to the Great Depression. It brought a lot of resources to many communities, but for farm workers in particular, what came out of the New Deal was very much grounded in racist white supremacy limits, right? It was about not extending those rights to farm workers in part because of what it would do to enhance, in particular, African-American civil rights as they're being displaced and dislocated from their farm status. So it's emerging in that moment. It's emerging during a moment in which corporate agriculture is on the rise, right? This is the 1930s and 40s when this is becoming, right, the sort of factory farming model is becoming a model nationally. And that's very much solidifying political influence through growers' organizations. And despite that, the FSA succeeds in improving farm workers' lives. You know, maybe not to the extent that they had hoped. It's certainly a fraction of the farm work labor force of the time, but tens of thousands of diverse migrant families experience security, stability, promise, right, that they had never encountered before because of the FSA's willingness to intervene on their behalf. So I think this is significant. They're 
not only able to succeed in these practical ways, right, providing much needed amenities or provisions for farm workers, but the FSA does something that I think is even more important in our current moment, and, and that is that they succeed in forcing or pressuring USID to recognize farm workers, to see them, right, not invisible labor, but really see them beyond their labor potential, beyond their economic contributions, not just thinking about farm workers as farm workers, but to borrow from the sort of disability rights activist world to see people that do farm labor, right, and therefore mm-hmm. merit, right, human rights protections that should be available to any worker in the so-called democratic society. Sanitary housing, which is still not guaranteed, right, affordable housing, medical care, quality education, like those things should be fundamental. And these agents argued for that. So they knew in that moment that they couldn't reach everyone, but talked about this program as the prefiguration of the world they imagined, right, as something that could, in fact, be achieved with the pressure of those of us who consume (laughs) these crops, right, those of us who labor in these crops, and that together, right, through collective action, we could, in fact, defy the appellation of this work as cheap, tractable, disposable, right, all of that. So I think, you know, in today's world, we need to take advantage of that. I don't know how much you all are talking about this at NYU, but here at Cornell, we've been talking more about the importance of the new New York Farm Laborers Fair Labor Practices Act. It was just passed this summer in 2019, and really trying to think through how this kind of new promise of collective bargaining rights, among other things, and employment benefits to farm laborers, how much is this really going to change, right, conditions for farm workers? And I argue that we historians are important (laughs) in that battle because it's going to take organization. It's going to take knowledge of what's possible, right? It's going to take the commitment from advocates, from workers, from consumers, religious groups, all of those to pressure the state to really enact these rights, to really carry them out. Definitely. Here in food studies, we've actually been paying close attention to what's happening on the state level, but we're also paying attention to these other modes of organizing that are presented by the Coalition of Immokalee Workers. As a matter of fact, I have a group of students going to a protest this afternoon. Um, and really think, yeah, and really thinking about these other ways in which people are pushing back and really demanding farm worker justice as part of food justice, as part of, you know, this more sustainable agriculture as well. You know, I think that right now we're in this really interesting period where people who are interested in food justice have seen that the fundamentally important things around food justice are also immigration reform and migrant justice. It is also farm worker justice. It's also environmental justice. I think, you know, we're living in a really important period in which your work is just, it's just too exciting. It's giving us some answers, you know? You're the only one who's helped me get there. I'm like, no, no, you, you just read this. It's supposed to be promising. It's supposed to be about, you know, potential, a model. There was a time against all odds. And everybody's just like, gosh, it's bad, right? <laughs> and no, no, you know this and I know this, especially in talking with farm worker communities that no, no, people are not giving up. There's very, I mean, Coalition of Immokalee Workers is a great example. There's so many who are like organizing, right, despite what you would think. I mean, what we know actually is a repressive <laughs> state environment right now. And they're organizing, of course, they're out there because it is something that should concern all of us. And it unfortunately, in some you know, instances, it does continue to feel like farmers are still invisible in that sense, right, in terms of the, the rights that they merit and the protections that they merit. Oh, definitely. I think, again, that that's the promise. I always tell my students, you know, I may be Debbie Downer because I really love to think about stories of failure and partly because I'm fascinated with their promise, right? Yeah. With the promise that people have in moments where they think about the world differently, where they push back differently, where they go up against all odds and do things that are incredible despite failing sometimes. Because for me, it's sort of like that's, you know, that they couldn't do it isn't the story. The story is that they imagined the world differently. Yeah. You know, they found a way. I mean, this goes back to maybe where we started about witnessing our immigrant families overcome their obstacles, because it's that invention. I don't know. How do you document that? Right. As a historian, but (laughs) I used to call it the hustle. It's like that every day. Like I never felt the poverty that I know we lived in or the exclusion in that way in that coming of age because somehow my parents did these things that were quite extraordinary despite that and, you know, again, advocated on our behalf and demanded our right to education and uh, went and sort of fought for, for those kinds of opportunities for us. And as a result, we're here. 
Definitely. But you know, what I think is so odd about both of our journeys is two very, very city-oriented young women (laughs) love to write and talk about farm workers. (laughs) So let me ask you, because I get asked this all the time, so your parents were farm workers, and I don't know how to take that, you know, all Mexicans were farm workers. So I have to admit that I have a little bit of a chip on my shoulder, because I'm like, no, (laughs) we moved to Los Angeles, and my father, you know, despite still quite like the kind of stereotypical story. My father washed dishes in Hollywood as his first job and my mom sewed in the garment industry, you know, so still I'm like, no, he was very aware that, you know, farm labor was hard work and that there was little opportunity really for advancement in that labor. So he fought hard, you know, even if it meant starting just washing dishes to be a city worker, right? To not be caught up. But at least your story has a touchstone of LA. I And you knew this from 2001, (laughs) being a young Latina from Chicago was constantly looked like as if I came from a different place, as if I came from somewhere else that that didn't have Mexicans. Right. (laughs) And so for me, I mean, my family, like yours, you know, came in undocumented, but my father's eldest brother and his eldest uncle, so not just his eldest brother, so several of those older brothers and uncles came in through the Bracero program. And the funny thing is that you know, they constantly, especially my older uncle says, you know, I did not want to do agricultural work. You know, the first chance he got to live in the city and to be in the city and to find another kind of employment, he said that you do that. You do that after, you know, years and hours and chunks of your life working as a stoop laborer, you want something else. And so I thought it was really important for my uncle to say, you know, when I asked him, so, you know, because I ask all these Nadell questions, like I asked him, so why did you come to Chicago or why not continue to work as a farm worker? And he sort of laughs at me as if, you know, I'm just like so silly, you know, and asking these questions. But I I think it's sort of important to flesh those things out. You know, for me, the story of farm workers is also a story that touches all of us. Everybody who eats, you know, in the U.S., we sort of need a reminder that we are tied to these people and that their food comes to our plates and that their fingerprints on our produce. And we need to sort of honor that in a different way because, you know, there's something that's not happening in which people, not everyone is sort of tied to these connections or really understand these connections. And so I think at this point in particular, you know, I'm pretty excited that, you know, there's a whole team of people like you and I and tons of really young folks that are right now writing their dissertations that are saying we need to come back to thinking about farm workers and we need to come back and think about this because we need to rethink this food system. So I think that's exciting. I think you're right, too. It used to be like the not interesting, not exciting work. But yeah, we've turned that around. Good for us. Definitely, definitely. You know, I have to ask because I am just waiting for your book to come out. I've been waiting because I really want to read it. And this is the article is just proof positive that like I was right in anticipating this uh, because I really think it's going to reshape how I think about farm work. Yeah. So well, when I'm, you're coming out, tell us. I know. <laughs> you and me and everybody, my whole family has <laughs> been waiting for this book to come out. So yeah, thank you to all of you who've been hanging tight. It's been a long work in progress. My book comes out, hopefully we're set for June 2020, so late spring or early summer. And it'll come out with the University of Pennsylvania Press as part of their Politics and Culture in Modern America series, which is a great group of series editors, fantastic and very supportive group of historians who've really guided my work in important ways. So I'm so excited about that. And yeah, I'm hoping, you know, that it's received well, especially in this moment in which we're considering the so-called migrant crisis or the question about what to do with displaced people, stateless persons. I think in some ways, farm workers very significantly offer a model to think through this question of migration and rights and, of course, protections. So I'm hopeful that it'll be well received and, yeah, look forward to sharing it with you. Yeah, I'll, get, I'll send you your own copy. Don't worry. Well, well, you didn't even tell us the title, so we can, you know, oh, Google here. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> That's funny. So the title of the book is Migrant Citizenship, Race, Rights, and Reform in the U.S. Farm Labor Camp Program. Amazing. Okay, so now you got to give us a teaser. What can we anticipate in the book that we have not seen? Because I think that if this article is an indication, there's going to be a lot. <laughs> there is going to be a lot. And so that's my disclaimer, if I, if I can help out the, the graduate students who might be listening. I had a very wise dissertation advisor, again, a shout out to Emilio Zamora, who said, you can't do everything. Scale it back. Because I had, when I discovered 
that this was in fact tied to this kind of national project. I wanted to do everything everywhere involving everyone, right? That was like, I couldn't ignore the overlap here, the intersections. And he was wise to tell me that I needed to finish a dissertation in somewhat reasonable time. So this book helps me branch out in a way that the article kind of, again, offers an example of, you know, the kind of, again, race relation, regionally related histories. It's rooted in all the landscapes I can, <laughs> as far as I could reach in terms of where this program operated. So while the article centered on the West, the book covers a lot more ground in terms of the origins of this program in the South, the importance of Southern agriculture to these politics. It looks at the labor camps that were built in Florida and then along the Atlantic coast to think about how in the camps in which there was formal segregation, some of these, again, measures around democracy and, you know, the promises of expanding farm workers' rights, of course, met new challenges. So I took my time. I was fortunate, which is not often the case for junior faculty, that I had the resources and the support. I hope more historians are able to access that because it made for a much richer narrative, I hope, I think, a bigger story and more important story as a result. No, I think so many of us are just very well aware that the promise of your work is going to be gigantic in trying to help us really fill out this arc of this narrative that we really have yet to really understand. You know, the farm worker experience is just one that is much more complicated than the amount of, of scholarship out there. And so I'm just so excited about being able to teach it, read it, reread it, and, you know, <laughs> And see you and celebrate it. <laughs> Thank you, friend. It's been a long journey, but I'm looking forward to that moment, too. And may we continue on this route together because it's been wonderful. Yes, but maybe next time we actually talk about some work. Because okay. I think the part of our banter has always been around family, <laughs> scholarship, but mostly how we move through this world. <laughs> yeah, it's a challenge, but it's good. It's, it, we're privileged. This has been the Journal of American History podcast for the late fall of 2019. Our host has been Dr. Maria Loza, Assistant Professor of Food Studies at New York University's Steinhardt School of Culture, Education, and Human Development. Our guest has been Dr. Veronica Martinez Matsuda, an assistant professor in the Department of Labor Relations, Law, and History at Cornell University School of Industrial and Labor Relations. Her article, For Labor and Democracy, the Farm Security Administration's Competing Visions for Farm Worker Socioeconomic Reform and Civil Rights in the 1940s, appears in the September 2019 issue of the Journal of American History. Thank you. It's been fun. Thank you for this opportunity to share my work, and thank you, Mireya. It's such an honor to have you discuss it. I appreciate it. It's always great to get to talk to you. Thank you.